You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marveled at the golden face of Tutankhamun? Or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 81, The Eagles of Boulogne. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I'll remind you once again that you can listen to this and all future episodes ad-free by pledging at least $2 a month on Patreon.com. Anyway. We left off last time on December 2nd, 1804. Napoleon Bonaparte had just crowned himself Emperor of the French in an opulent and somewhat idiosyncratic ceremony at the Cathedral of Notre Dame, right in the heart of Paris. As the Emperor left Notre Dame, he was greeted by the troops of the Imperial Guard, who were assembled outside the cathedral. This was the only real representation of the military at the ceremony. A large number of generals had participated, but they wore special coronation clothes that didn't look very military. The only visual reminders of Napoleon's origins in the army were the victory laurel he wore on his head and the sword he was presented as a part of the imperial regalia. People often think of Bonaparte as a military dictator, but this was very much a civilian ceremony that emphasized his roles as an administrator and statesman over his role as commander-in-chief. But Napoleon had not forgotten his soldiers, or turned his back on his origins. The empire would be consecrated before the army in a second ceremony, three days after the coronation, December 5th. New regimes require new symbols. And so, the colonels of every regiment in the army would assemble in Paris to trade in their old battle flags for new standards to be distributed by the emperor himself. Some of you may have noticed that I use the word regiment, not demi-brigade. We've discussed in previous episodes the way the army had used this period of relative peace for a whole series of administrative reforms. One of these was the replacement of the somewhat cumbersome revolutionary term, demi-brigade, with the older, more traditional term, regiment. In theory, the demi-brigades of the revolutionary army had been intended to represent a totally different style of military organization. In practice, they were about the same size and structure as the regiments of the old army. But successive revolutionary governments had stubbornly refused to revert to the old name, 
in part out of inertia, and in part because they associated the term regiment with the old reactionary officer corps, which had been such a source of trouble and fear in the early years of the revolution. But the term demi-brigade had never really been popular inside the army, and Napoleon finally got rid of it in 1803. Anyway, on December 5th, the colonels of every regiment were assembled on the Champ de Mars, a park fittingly named after the Roman god of war, just in front of the entrance to the École Militaire, France's most elite officer training school which Napoleon himself had attended. Every battle flag in the whole French army was all in one place, and it was a pretty motley collection. Between the exigencies of war and constant changes to official regulations, there had been a huge variety of banners carried by the soldiers of the Revolution. They were mostly in the same three colors, the blue, white, and red of the national flag, but that was where the uniformity ended. Some were vertical or horizontal tricolors, but others used more exotic patterns, sometimes bordering on the psychedelic. Many were also adorned with Republican symbols, like the Liberty Cap or the Roman Fasces, which at this time represented the authority of the legislature. Many were inscribed with slogans. Liberty or death was popular, as was the less inspiring, but perhaps more practical, discipline and submission to military law. Others read Honor and Fatherland, or Valor and Discipline. Many were inscribed with the names of great battlefield victories or successful campaigns in which the regiment had taken part. The regimental flag really did mean something. Sure, they were just pieces of oiled silk, but soldiers viewed them with reverence. Flags were always a target on the battlefield. Men killed and died to defend them. The flag was almost the soul of the regiment. So we can imagine the delegations of officers assembled on the Champ de Mars had mixed emotions about handing in these symbols of regimental pride. But it did mean something that the new standards would come directly from the hand of the emperor. In other armies, having a flag presented to the regiment by the sovereign was a rare privilege, usually reserved only for the most elite units. The new flags themselves would be relatively simple a white diamond bordered by alternating red and blue triangles, inscribed on one side with the words Emperor of the French to the, followed by the name of the regiment, and inscribed on the other side with either a slogan or the names of the regiment's battlefield victories. Some good trivia for you, in 1804 there was only one non-standard flag in the whole French army, the Green Banner of the Irish Legion. The really notable thing about these standards was the finial on top of the flagpole, a 12-inch or 30-centimeter bronze statue of an eagle with its wings half-spread, clutching a lightning bolt in its talons, covered in gold. This eagle was the new symbol of Napoleon's monarchy. Every great European noble house had some recognizable emblem that represented it in art, official documents, and architecture usually a holdover from medieval heraldry. Everyone in Europe knew the double-headed eagle of the Habsburgs and the Lion of England. The old royal regime had the fleur-de-lis, which remains associated with France today, even though it's been well over a century since France had a king or a queen. 
Before the coronation, Napoleon already had something in mind, an animal that he thought embodied the power and prestige of his new dynasty, the elephant. Fortunately for the artists and designers of France, the Council of State talked him out of this idea, and they eventually settled on an eagle. The soldiers were originally a bit perplexed by these eagle standards. For one thing, they were heavy, 4 pounds or 1.8 kilograms, which isn't so much on its own, but can really be felt when it's being carried on the top of a tall flagpole. The troops nicknamed them cuckoos, which would soon spread to the other armies of the Napoleonic Wars. These eagles were an obvious nod to ancient Rome. Each Roman legion carried a similar standard, which was treated with almost religious reverence by the troops. Napoleon's men would soon learn that the eagles were much more imposing and less cumbersome with the flag removed, and so they were typically carried with the flagpole bare, just that shining gilded eagle hovering above the action. Just as Bonaparte hoped, these cuckoos came to be treasured by his armies. They were the most visible symbol of his personal connection with the military. They were so iconic that the eagles became a shorthand for the army itself. Some of the most savage fighting of the Napoleonic Wars occurred around these hallowed standards. France's enemies knew what the eagle represented. There was no greater prize on a Napoleonic battlefield. Every regiment in the French army got at least one eagle at this 1804 ceremony. We know that they very quickly came to be seen as desirable, because smaller units that did not receive eagles wrote to the war ministry to complain. After this ceremony, newly raised regiments did not receive their eagles until they proved themselves on the battlefield. This was Napoleon's personal symbol, and the eagle soon came to be one of his many nicknames. Capturing one of these standards was almost like capturing a little piece of the emperor himself. He wouldn't entrust it to just anyone. The eagles would evolve slightly over the course of the Napoleonic Wars. Regulations on their distribution and use would change, and they were eventually made slightly smaller and lighter. But they would remain the iconic symbol of Napoleon's armies right up until the end of our story. The period of 1803 through 5 was an unusual but formative time for the French army. With the collapse of the Treaty of Amiens, the country was at war once again, but the enemy was across the English Channel. The supremacy of the Royal Navy made crossing the Channel a daunting task. France had no way to strike directly at its enemy. A strange state of affairs for the army. It was at war, but there didn't seem to be much for it to do. But Napoleon was not the type to sit back and do nothing. The army was the most powerful tool at his disposal, and the one that he was most skilled at wielding. By all conventional wisdom, there was nothing the troops could do in this situation. But Napoleon did not accept conventional wisdom. He understood the French military was much more than a machine for winning battles and conquering territory. Its sheer size and fearsome reputation could be weapons in their own right. To that end, Bonaparte would do something almost unprecedented in the history of warfare. The cream of the French army, nearly 200,000 men, would all be concentrated along a narrow strip of the French coast. 
an invasion was not practical at the moment, but the army would begin preparing for one anyway. Napoleon wanted his men ready at a moment's notice, when and if an opportunity arose. But more importantly, he wanted to menace England. In 1803, Britain was more or less united behind the war effort. But as we've seen in past episodes, British public opinion and the British press were quite fickle. Only a few years earlier, the war against France had been so unpopular that there had been mutinies in the Royal Navy, and some in the government had begun to fear an insurrection. Bonaparte hoped that by stationing a large army right on England's doorstep, he could rekindle the invasion fever that had gripped Britain in the last war. He believed this would put pressure on the government, and maybe revive some of those anti-war feelings which had been so strong before the Treaty of Amiens. It's always important to keep in mind that, although Britain was not anything close to a democracy in the modern sense, it did have an adversarial political system, in which rival parties and political cliques openly and legally competed for power. Prime Minister Pitt and his Tory government were strong at the moment, but that could change in an instant, and there were other factions within Parliament who were less committed to the war. Throughout the Napoleonic Wars, Bonaparte would hold out the hope that by applying the right kind of pressure to Britain, he could manipulate this system, undermine the pro-war forces within the system, and create an opening for a peace faction to gain power. The idea of concentrating nearly 200,000 men in the northern French countryside probably doesn't sound like much to modern ears. With our cutting-edge motorized logistics and electronic communication systems, it's pretty easy for our political leaders to deploy troops basically anywhere and keep them there as long as needed. But in Napoleon's time, this was not really done. Generally speaking, units were either out in the field facing the enemy or back in their home bases. When they were home, they were rarely in a state of readiness. A lot of officers and men were granted leave, and many of the soldiers even worked day jobs. This idea of keeping such a large body of men out in the middle of nowhere in a perpetual state of readiness was more or less new. The main settlement in the area chosen to host the army was the city of Boulogne-sur-Mer. It had about 10,000 residents. None of the other towns and villages nearby came close to that size. Between the soldiers, the sailors, the camp followers, and the civilian merchants and contractors who did business with the army, the forces assembled for the invasion massively outnumbered the permanent residents in this region. Simply feeding this many men was a massive undertaking. They also needed clothing, equipment, ammunition, and lodging. Remember, this was supposed to be an invasion force in waiting. Napoleon wanted them equipped to a very high standard. Millions of francs were spent building semi-permanent encampments along the coast, and creating the logistical infrastructure to keep them supplied. Millions more were spent expanding the harbors of nearby towns, to create space for over 2,000 ships and small boats that were gathered to ferry the troops across the channel, if the day ever came. Of course, the British took a keen interest in all this activity, 
and that meant millions more francs spent building gun batteries and fortresses to defend all these coastal installations against Royal Navy raids. Historians refer to this enterprise as the Camp at Boulogne, although calling it a camp kind of undersells the scale. Starting in the summer of 1803, Napoleon spent a lot of time at the camp. A semi-permanent wooden structure known as the Imperial Barracks was built for him outside the town of Boulogne, high on the cliffs overlooking the channel. It was a relatively simple, unadorned building of just three rooms, one of which was an office. It must have been quite a change from the splendor he enjoyed at his palaces and his country estate. Bonaparte threw himself into the task of organizing and preparing the army. No detail was beneath his notice. From a letter to his minister of war, quote, I have reason to be satisfied with the shoes I saw in storage, and with the blankets and kettles. But I am not equally so with the camp tools, which are not the slightest use. They are mere remainders, and not worth the transport. I am fairly content with the biscuits, tolerably so with the bread and meat. End quote. So it seems the emperor was actually sampling the food to judge its quality. Napoleon was a notorious micromanager, but even by his standards, this is a remarkable level of involvement. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. For the soldiers, one activity dominated their time at the camp. Training. In a typical week, the average soldier had two days of battalion drill, three days of divisional maneuvers, and core-level maneuvers on Sunday. That only leaves one day a week for all the other duties of a soldier, including the maintenance of the camp. On top of all that, there were army-level maneuvers once a month, and occasional special exercises, where they practiced amphibious landings and night fighting. There was also a lot of target practice, which, believe it or not, had not been practiced with any regularity under the old regime. In fact, none of this type of training was practiced by any of the major European armies with any regularity. This was something relatively new. Battalion drill was very common, especially in the more professional armies. 18th century soldiers had lots of practice marching in formation, making smart turns in their march columns, going through the manual of arms, and standing at attention for hours at a time. But large unit maneuvers, which sought to mimic the types of movements made by armies on campaign, were comparatively rare. Certainly no one was doing them once a week, as Napoleon's army now was. 
coordinating all these movements and meeting the logistical needs of so many men living in the camp represented a massive organizational challenge. To overcome these challenges, the French army had become more systematized than any military on earth had ever been. In every European army, regiments were a standard size. These were the building blocks of the army. A commander needed to know roughly how many men he was ordering around the battlefield. In every other army, this is where the standardization stopped. Larger units like brigades, divisions, and corps were thrown together on an ad hoc basis, based on tactical or strategic considerations, the abilities of their commanders, tradition, or simple convenience. That was no longer the case in the French army. Divisions and corps were now also standardized. The corps had evolved into almost miniature armies, with their own cavalry and artillery reserves. Both divisions and corps now had their own permanent headquarters staff to handle logistics, planning, and organization. Think of it this way. In the first Italian campaign, Napoleon had moved his units around with deftness and speed, shuffling them in and out of the line as needed, and moving them around to different parts of the theater in his infamous forced marches. The army now assembled at Boulogne was nearly ten times the size of the Army of Italy during that campaign. If Bonaparte wanted the same level of nimbleness from this huge force, the military would have to do a lot of streamlining. These new standardized corps and divisions were a way of creating the level of efficiency and responsiveness needed to translate Napoleon's preferred style of warfare to a much larger scale. By the end of this story, we'll see Napoleon wielding armies of hundreds of thousands, with the same dexterity he showed commanding 20,000 in Italy in 1796. These standardized units with their dedicated headquarters are a big reason he was able to do that. This is just one example of the type of task that was being undertaken at Boulogne. The French army had learned a lot of valuable lessons through ten years of war. They had developed a lot of good habits and winning attitudes. Now those good habits were becoming formalized into good systems, and those winning attitudes were being elucidated into official doctrine. Things that French generals knew worked with small armies of 20,000 were scaled up so they could work for armies of 200,000. The experience of the last 10 years was codified into army regulations so that in the future, newly raised units and freshly promoted officers could benefit from this knowledge, just like the old veterans. This wasn't the most exciting period for the army, except for the most exacting type of staff officer who lived for this type of bureaucratic nonsense. For the average soldier or sailor, the camp at Boulogne was a period of drudgery and boredom. Napoleon did his best to relieve this boredom and maintain the army's sense of purpose. Starting in the summer of 1803, he made frequent visits to Boulogne, sometimes staying for weeks at a time. By my count, he spent more time at Boulogne than he did at his country estate at Malmaison. The only place he spent more time during this period was Paris. Bonaparte also took concrete measures to unite the army and the officer corps, and of course, bind them to his regime. 
One of these measures was the restoration of a title from the old regime, marshal. I say title rather than rank because this is always how it had been used throughout French history. Under the old regime, Marshal of France had been an honor bestowed on victorious generals, not an actual military rank. It was almost akin to a noble title. This title of Marshal was purely symbolic, but that didn't mean it wasn't highly prized. In the 700 years since the title had been created, only a few hundred men had been granted the privilege of calling themselves Marshal of France. This was a very elite group of France's greatest soldiers, names every man in the army knew. The blue baton of the marshals of France had been one of the most iconic symbols of the pre-revolutionary army. Now Napoleon was bringing it back, although he replaced the gold fleur-de-lis symbol of the old regime with the new imperial eagle. This was an army obsessed with official honors and military glory, and there was no distinction more highly prized than the title of marshal. Napoleon restored the marshalate in 1804. Eighteen generals were chosen as members of this inaugural group. This was a balancing act. Napoleon didn't want to be seen as forgetting his friends, the men who had stood by his side and supported him throughout his rise to power. However, he also didn't want to appear to be playing favorites. If he only rewarded men from the old patronage network of the Army of Italy, he might alienate the rest of the army. In the end, seven of the eighteen would be veterans of the First Italian Campaign. The Army of Italy was overrepresented, but the majority of this first class of marshals came from outside of Napoleon's old patronage network. There was some grumbling particularly about the elevation of Napoleon's chief of staff, Louis-Alexandre Berthier, who didn't really have any grand military achievements to his name, other than assisting Napoleon. But the appointments were generally perceived as fair. For the rest of our story, the title of Marshal of the Empire really will carry a great deal of weight. As a group, the marshals became notorious for prima-donna behavior, squabbling among themselves, and shamelessly jockeying for the boss's attention. Eventually, several of them would turn against Napoleon. But they were some of the finest commanders in Europe, and all of them were very proud to be a part of this exclusive fraternity. Almost every officer in Napoleon's army dreamed of earning a blue baton of his own. There were also other distinctions created for meritorious service, most notably the Order of the Legion of Honor and the new Napoleonic aristocracy. The lure of these rewards help unite all the various cliques and patronage networks within the officer corps, and fostered a sense that they were all soldiers of the empire, loyal first and foremost to France and Napoleon. Although, as we'll see, this certainly did not mean the end of rivalries between various marshals and generals. All of these honors and titles served a useful purpose, but they also represented a retreat from the egalitarian ideals of the revolution. Back in Napoleon's Jacobin days, his patron, Robespierre, had preached that free citizens should be motivated by selfless virtue and patriotism, never by some crass desire for personal reward. 
But Napoleon's thinking on this matter had evolved quite a bit since the 1790s. He had come to believe that virtue and self-sacrifice deserved to be celebrated, that if the government expected virtuous behavior from its citizens, it would need to incentivize them and provide role models, rather than simply demanding it. When someone dared criticize this new system of official honors to Napoleon's face, he responded, quote, You tell me that class distinctions are baubles used by monarchs. I defy you to show me a republic, ancient or modern, in which distinctions have not existed. You call these medals and ribbons baubles. Well, it is with such baubles that men are led. I would not say it in public, but in an assembly of wise statesmen it should be said. I don't think that the French love liberty and equality. The French are not changed by ten years of revolution. They are what the Gauls were. Fierce and fickle. They have one feeling, honor. We must nourish that feeling. The people clamor for distinction. See how the crowd is awed by the medals and orders worn by foreign diplomats. We must recreate these distinctions. There has been too much tearing down. We must rebuild. A government exists, yes, and power. But the nation itself, what is it? Scattered grains of sand. End quote. Napoleon is sometimes accused of being a nihilist, who believed only in himself. But I think he did have some core beliefs, and this was one of them. He believed in rewarding merit, not only for its own sake, but because a government that was seen as rewarding virtue and merit was a government people would happily serve. He had opposed the class distinctions of the old regime, not because he was opposed to the concept of distinctions, but because they were irrational. The old regime had rewarded people based on the chance of birth. Who your great-great-grandparents were mattered far more than what you made of yourself. Napoleon felt very strongly that a person should be judged by their actions alone, that birth rank, and station were questions of chance, and the only true measure of a person's worth was their behavior. As he would later say, you could find nobility in the rabble and rabble in the nobility. He didn't always live up to this principle, but he did make it a centerpiece of his regime and his military, and it's a big reason so many people were willing to follow him. They had confidence that if they served well, they would receive a just reward. As for the common soldiers, we've already talked about how much time Napoleon spent at his headquarters, grappling with even the most mundane details of the army's organization, equipment, and logistics. But he also spent a lot of time out and about, observing maneuvers and talking to the men. This was one of Napoleon's most underrated talents. He excelled at these small-scale encounters with average people, especially soldiers. He had a million little ways of making people feel at ease and expressing genuine interest in their concerns. It could be as simple as offering everyone a pinch of snuff from his personal tobacco stash, or as elaborate as going to the military hospital and involving himself in the cases of the patients. On one occasion, he examined a group of soldiers' necks after a long march, 
to make sure their uniform collars weren't chafing. Napoleon's ability to inspire and motivate the common soldier was legendary. Many people explained it as a kind of ineffable charisma, some indescribable quality, almost like an aura. But I think the real explanation might be a bit more prosaic. First, he won battles. Second, he was very active in ensuring the comfort and welfare of his men. And, finally, he had a lot of personal contact with his soldiers. Many of the lowliest privates in the army had met him face to face, or at least knew someone who had, and he tended to make a good impression in these encounters. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon had good reason to be spending so much time with the troops. He was worried about their morale. Idleness is not good for armies. As long as they stayed in camp and gazed across the channel at an enemy that was only about 21 miles or 33 kilometers away, but that remained stubbornly out of reach, there was always the chance for a creeping sense of futility to take hold and rob the army of its strength. This was part of the reason for the constant drills and maneuvers, and part of the reason the emperor spent so much time at the camp. As the army's time at Boulogne stretched from months to years, its leaders focused on fighting boredom and inactivity almost as much as the British. Many of the early members of the Legion of Honor were inducted on a large wooden stage built outside Boulogne, rather than in Paris. It gave Napoleon more time with the army, and allowed him to showcase his regime's promise of a just reward for meritorious service. As the months passed, the so-called encampment became increasingly permanent. Soldiers built wooden shacks to replace their tents, then huts of wood and sod to replace the shacks. There were temporary streets paved with wood, many of which even had names. Like good Frenchmen, they even built bakeries to ensure a constant supply of fresh bread. By 1804, the string of encampments along the northern coast looked more like a collection of cities and towns. Meanwhile, across the Channel, the presence of the French was having an effect. Just as Napoleon hoped, Britain was once again gripped by invasion fever. The always dramatic British press terrified the public with stories of a secret tunnel dug under the Channel and fleets of hundreds of hot air balloons leading an airborne invasion. One English paper printed a diagram of, quote, 
A floating machine invented by the French for invading England acts on the principles of both wind and water mills, carries 60,000 men and 600 cannon. End quote. According to the diagram, this juggernaut was so big that it had stone fortifications on board. Once again, British men flocked to join militia units, and the government raced to build fortifications along the coast. And not a moment too soon. Napoleon was right, the British were woefully unprepared to fight a defensive war on their own soil. If the French managed to land a sizable force on the south coast, the small, comparatively inexperienced British army would be hard-pressed to contain them. Bonaparte had certainly succeeded in making the British afraid of his army. But remember, that wasn't the whole plan. He wasn't just sowing fear for its own sake. He believed a frightened populace would put pressure on the government to end the war. In fact, it seems this invasion panic may have had the opposite effect, led people to rally behind the government and support the war. Even people who never would have dreamed of supporting Pitt and his Tories came to see the government as the only bulwark against the looming threat across the Channel. Still, there was growing pressure on the British government. Not to end the war, but to take some kind of military action against the ports of northern France, to disrupt these invasion plans. The British leadership was hesitant about this idea, and understandably so. By 1804, the French Channel ports were practically fortresses. An attempt to raid any of these harbors would be greeted by hundreds of cannon. At Boulogne, there was a new heavy mortar, dubbed the Monster, which was so powerful that the gunners had to leave the room when it was fired, or risk being deafened. It was believed the monster could sink a warship with a single shot. If the Royal Navy devoted a large number of ships to raid the Channel ports, and those ships were destroyed, it could create the opening Napoleon was waiting for. A botched raid could bring about the very thing it was meant to prevent. So, the British decided to get creative. They reached out to an American inventor and naval engineer named Robert Fulton. Today, Fulton is famous as one of the key early pioneers of steamship design and the creator of the first practical submarine. But in 1804, that was still in the future. He had yet to make his reputation. Fulton was actually working in France at the time, but the British were able to entice him to switch sides in large part because the French government had come to consider him an unreliable crank. Napoleon, in particular, took a very dim view of Fulton, referring to him as a charlatan. Upon his arrival in Britain, Fulton began work on a whole series of new weapon concepts that would enable the Royal Navy to strike at French ships in port without danger to their own vessels. The Royal Navy ultimately settled on two designs. The first was something called a torpedo catamaran, which was supposed to work roughly like a modern torpedo, pointed at an enemy vessel, and then propelled along the surface of the water, until it reached its target and exploded. The second was a new type of fireship, which would be ignited by a clockwork timer, 
rather than the somewhat crude traditional method of a brave officer with a torch staying on the ship to light it on fire manually and then swim for dear life away from the burning hulk. The raid was set for the main harbor of Boulogne on the night of October 2nd, 1804. It did not go well. The French were well prepared for an attack. Even in the dead of the night, Sentries high on the cliffs outside Boulogne were able to spot the British squadron long before they made their attack run. The alarm was raised, fires were lit along the beach, and the gunners of the coastal fortifications rushed to their positions. Within minutes, the British squadron began taking fire. They had no choice but to launch their newfangled weapons early and hope for the best. None of them had the desired effect. Fulton's inventions produced some terrific explosions, which lit up the whole harbor, but they had been launched too quickly, too far from their targets. The only French ship destroyed was a small Coast Guard vessel, which had pulled up alongside one of the fire ships in an attempt to board it, not knowing what it was. Fulton had been so confident in his inventions that he had negotiated a huge cash bonus for every French ship of the line destroyed by his weapons. But the results of the raid seemed to have confirmed Napoleon's view of this brash American. The Royal Navy would try again with similar methods a year later, but it too resulted in failure. The British government had undertaken these raids in part to assuage a nervous public, but ironically, they proved very unpopular. Fulton was widely mocked as a kind of crackpot tinkerer, and his machines were criticized as an underhanded and cowardly way to wage war. Sometimes, the public doesn't know what it wants. In 1806, Fulton returned to the United States where he would finally achieve a measure of success, and put a stop to those whispers of crank and charlatan. Some historians have argued that the raids on Boulogne were not a complete failure, that although the French fleet was not damaged, there was some damage to French morale. The very fact that the British could strike at them in their most well-fortified safe harbor helped reinforce the inferiority complex of the French Navy, and build up the aura of omnipotence around the Royal Navy. It's also been argued that the raids helped put the French in a defensive mindset, that they became more focused on protecting their ships than actually preparing for an invasion. Perhaps that's all true, but there's no disputing that these raids fell far short of expectations and proved that the types of weapons envisioned by Fulton were simply not feasible with Napoleonic-era technology, even if later history would prove that he was actually on the right track. While the Royal Navy was busy planning and executing the failed raids on Boulogne, Prime Minister Pitt was pursuing a different, more subtle plan to ensure British security seeking out allies on the continent to form yet another coalition against France. Despite the Republic's stunning victories in the two recent coalition wars, Pitt's diplomats found sympathetic ears all over Europe. As Bonaparte consolidated his regime and built up the French military, France looked like just as big a threat as ever. 
as Napoleon prepared for his coronation, and his propagandists went to work comparing him to Charlemagne, the message was received loud and clear in foreign capitals, as well as among the French public. He was all but openly declaring his intention to make France the permanent hegemon of a new Europe. Understandably, that made the other European powers very nervous. Relations between France and Austria were particularly bad. You might remember that in the treaties ending the War of the First Coalition and the War of the Second Coalition, Austria had agreed to reorganize the Holy Roman Empire, with oversight from France. After years of fits and starts, and painfully long and contentious negotiations, that process was finally complete. Before the Revolution, the Holy Roman Empire had contained over 350 sovereign states. That's more than the total number of independent countries on Earth today. Now, that number was reduced to just 39. The Holy Roman Empire was beginning to resemble a federation of independent states, rather than the strange feudal patchwork that had emerged from the Middle Ages. France and Austria had finally reached an agreement, but the negotiations had gone about as badly as they possibly could have while still producing a result. At one point, the French representatives were attacked by a group of Austrian soldiers, and two of them were actually killed. The French didn't go so far as to attack anyone, but their behavior during the negotiations was quite provocative. From the very beginning, it was clear that their only goals here were to make the process as painful as possible for the Austrians, and to ensure that France gained influence in Germany at Austria's expense. So, once again, there was a peace that had only set the stage for the next conflict. Austria had lost out badly, and as we've discussed in past episodes, there was a deep fear among Austrian policymakers that the empire might be in terminal decline, and a sense that something had to be done to arrest that decline before it was too late. Habsburg power was not totally shattered. They were still strong enough that they could dream of rebuilding their military and overturning this unfavorable status quo. And so, that's what they set about doing. Almost everyone at court in Vienna favored a return to war. The only real question was when. Archduke Charles, the emperor's brother and one of the Austrian army's most competent leaders, wanted to wait. For years now, Charles had been an advocate of reform within the Habsburg military. Perhaps reform is underselling it. Charles wanted to completely rebuild the Austrian army borrowing methods from the French, and applying cutting-edge modern military theory. As always in these situations, the old guard did not want to listen. But, after two massive, humiliating defeats at the hands of the French in under a decade, Archduke Charles had been allowed to put many of his plans into motion. Austria was rebuilding its armies, and those armies would not be as old-fashioned as the ones that had suffered defeat in the wars of the First and Second Coalitions. But by this time, the rebuilding and reform process was far from complete. When the British came to court, soliciting allies for their new coalition, Archduke Charles argued the time was not right. He said the current situation was good for Austria. Napoleon was distracted. 
he and his army were locked in a staring contest with the British across the channel, while every day the Austrian army grew bigger and his reforms took deeper root. But others at the imperial court saw the situation differently. They argued that with every day of peace, France grew stronger, and Germany and Italy slipped further from Austria's grasp. They told Emperor Francis II that he should return to war as soon as humanly possible, before it was too late. So, the Austrian leadership was internally divided, but the only question was war now or war later. When the British first came calling in 1803, looking for allies, the War Later faction had the Emperor's ear. Francis II rebuffed the British. But throughout 1804, the Emperor increasingly came under the influence of the War Now faction. In particular, he began listening to the Quartermaster General of the Habsburg Army, a man named Karl Mach von Liebrich. General Mach had spent time in Paris as a prisoner during the last war, before eventually either escaping or breaking his parole, depending on who you ask. He claimed this experience had given him unique insights into the French. As he put it, quote, I have imbibed the true essence of the French national spirit, end quote. Of course, every Austrian general on both sides of this debate had faced the French on the battlefield and I would argue that actually commanding an army against the Republicans probably gave better insights into their methods than spending time in Paris as their prisoner. Still, there were a lot of very important people in Vienna who were very impressed by General Mach's grand pronouncements, including the Emperor. Throughout 1804 and early 1805, the Emperor's mind began to change. He had the British whispering in one ear, and General Mach and the pro-war faction in the other. Meanwhile, that old competition between France and Austria for influence in Italy and Germany was still simmering. The Austrians still had that existential dread about the decline of their empire relative to the other great powers. Austria was drifting towards war. British diplomacy was bearing fruit in Northern Europe as well. In late 1804, Britain signed a military alliance with Sweden. This was a real achievement. If you'll think back to past episodes, you might remember that Sweden had been part of the League of Armed Neutrality, which, only four years earlier, had been on the verge of war with Britain. British diplomats at the Russian court were finding a receptive audience as well. Emperor Alexander I was a well-known Anglophile, he also harbored ambitions of making Russia a major player in German politics. The British were able to sell growing French influence in Germany as a threat to those ambitions. You can probably see where this is going. By early 1805, everyone had heard rumors of a new coalition forming against France. Napoleon was not blind to these developments. In March of 1805, the French fleet at Toulon on the Mediterranean dodged the British blockade and set sail for open seas. This maneuver was designed to draw British naval forces away from the English Channel, and it worked. A large detachment of ships, led by Lord Nelson himself, sailed into the Atlantic to find this rogue fleet. 
With so many Royal Navy ships away from the Channel, this represented the best opportunity yet for Napoleon to finally launch his grand invasion. But he did not take it. Even with the British forces depleted, the odds were still against success. Napoleon let the chance pass by, and the way things turned out, he would never get another one. By the summer of 1805, Bonaparte was shifting his focus from the English Channel to the Rhine, and to northern Italy, where he expected to soon face the Austrians, and possibly the Russians, once again. In late August, Napoleon wrote to Foreign Minister Talleyrand, quote, My mind is made up. My movement has begun. By September 17th, I shall be in Germany with 200,000 men. End quote. The Napoleonic invasion of Britain was never officially cancelled, but in late August of 1805, orders went out to the camps around Boulogne, redeploying the forces along the Channel to the Rhine to face this nascent new coalition. Bonaparte never lost the ambition of conquering the United Kingdom, but he would never pursue it seriously again. French armies would never return to the Channel coast in the same numbers. The camp at Boulogne was a strange period for the French army. It was a time of boredom and frustration. Many units experienced low morale as they drilled relentlessly for a mission that always seemed slightly too far out of reach. Many French soldiers spent years in these camps. Despite Napoleon's best efforts to keep the men busy and focused, it was probably inevitable that some doubts would creep in over so many months. However, despite these doubts, the camp at Boulogne was also one of the most crucial formative periods in the entire history of the French military. Without this time of intense training, preparation, and organization, the astounding conquests of the next decade might not have been possible. What had once been referred to hopefully as the Army of England now got a new name, the Grande Armée. They were better trained, organized, and equipped than probably any army in history up to that point. The average age of the common soldiers was actually relatively old, generally ranging from mid-twenties to mid-thirties. Most were combat veterans, and many had been with the army since the late 1790s, or even earlier. They knew their business very well, both from practical experience and from training and doctrine. Generally speaking, they were patriotic, well-motivated, and highly loyal to France, to Napoleon, and to their individual units and officers. The armies of the Republic had been fearsome but flawed. During their time at Boulogne, Napoleon and his officers had worked tirelessly to repair those flaws and improve on the army's strengths. As he prepared to take his men into battle once again, Napoleon had confidence that they had been honed to a near-perfect instrument. The coming campaigns would see one of the greatest armies in history, commanded by one of the greatest generals in history. There was a sense in the old regime capitals of Europe that Bonaparte had finally gone too far, with his opulent coronation, his ludicrous title of Emperor of the French and his obviously harebrained schemes to evade the Royal Navy and invade Britain. Many believed this brash Corsican upstart had finally bitten off more than he could chew, and now 
they would make him pay the price. The coming war would show them just how wrong they were. In fact, Napoleon had not yet reached the height of his powers. With the Grande Armée behind him, Bonaparte had not even come close to the limits of what he might achieve. The last months of 1805 would be some of the most astounding in the history of modern warfare. Napoleon would elevate the science of war to a form of art. Before the end of the year, his enemies would literally be reduced to tears. Next episode, we'll begin the story of these remarkable campaigns. Until then, thanks for listening.